0: I found a little plot of land In the garden of Eden It was dirt and dirt is all the same I tilled it with my two hands And I called it my very own There was no one to dispute my claim Well, you'd be shocked At the state of things. Just cleared right out It was hotter than hell So I laid me by a spring For a spell as naked as a trout Ourselves a time. We are going to have a garden party. It's on me, no, sorry, it's my dime. We broke our hearts in the war between St. George and the dragon. Tell me what is meant by sin or none in a garden seceded from the Union in the year of eighty one. The unending amends, if made, are enough for one life. Can I believe
1: A story is true. A story is untrue. A story is a work of transformative fiction. As time extends, it matters less and less. Hello, I'm Kendra Spring Classic, and welcome back to Reading Between the Lines, a podcast by fandom nerds for fandom nerds. This podcast is all about fan fiction, the much maligned art form that, nevertheless, brings many people cathartic levels of joy, not just in the reading of it but in the creation of it as well. If this is your first time listening, welcome! We're so glad to have you. But be sure to go back and listen to our previous episodes. These are evergreen stories, which can be revisited again and again. You're certain to discover something new each time. I know I have. In last month's episode, I spoke with Etoile about their Mahdian flint fic stitched with its color. We talked about the differences between Flint's individualistic revolutionary goals and Maudie's communally focused goals, and how Flint is drawn ever increasingly closer towards the center. Etoile was able to paint a picture of Maudie for me, and I'm sure many of our listeners, that placed her character in a much broader perspective. This month, I'm featuring a story about James and Thomas. A first for this podcast, in a post-canon fic, that picks up right where the series leaves off. Not For Oneself by Croatian author Eva, a.k.a. Blue Trees, is a devastating and extremely realistic portrayal of trauma and healing, of lovers reuniting after a decade of loss that has wrought unimaginable change. The focus on grieving coming this month was purely a coincidence. However, September 28th marks the one-year anniversary of the loss of my mother-in-law, Angie Classic. Angie was one of the strongest and kindest women I've ever met, and my family feels her loss every day. Grief ebbs and flows like the tide, and there is a deep truth embedded in the text here that brought down every last barrier I had put up. Join me as we journey to Savannah, remembering those we've lost in Not For Oneself. not for oneself, by blue trees. Summary What did Odysseus say to Penelope when he came back to Ithaca? And what did Achilles say to Patroclus when they met in the afterlife, both as mere shadows of what they once were, only kept alight by the love they shared? What do you say after, I'm home, when you find that home is not as you left it, because you are not as you were before? when it is time to reconcile with the hard truths and consequences of all that you have done. Have mercy on me. Know that what I tell you is of the past and that it has brought me to you. So please have mercy. In Savannah, James tells his story to Thomas. Notes So, the ending of Black Sails, unsurprisingly, steamrolled me, and I will forever be thinking about it. This piece is basically me trying to cope, infused with hopeful optimism, and a meek attempt at being somewhat realistic with what James-slash-Flint might feel, and how he might communicate with Thomas. I wanted to ground this in a place of healing, but I feel it has carried through the conflict I can't help but feel when it comes to the ending. But yeah, all in all, I'm quite pleased with it, and I hope you'll like it too. not for oneself, by blue trees. Look back over the past, with its changing empires that rose and fell, and you can foresee the future too. Marcus Aurelius The wall of tall grasses sways and stutters in the wind. The green reed stalks bow gracefully, glinting in the blinding midday sun and cresting in small waves. They shine like wave foam. This is just a trick of the light, though. Never in his life has James McGraw been this far away from the sea. When he was a child, the windows of the house where he lived looked straight out at the harbor, and he could hear drunken sailors rumbling past every evening on their way to the tavern to make sure they did not sober up for a mere moment. It's a hard life for a man of the sea, his grandfather would say. She is a cruel and wily wife, and if you forget to respect her, well... You can forget the rest of your life as well. Best leave her alone, his grandfather warned, if you're not prepared. And what did James do? Went off to the Navy the first moment he got. It was either that or the trade ships, but those got attacked by pirates. He'd rather be the one doing the attacking, so the Navy it was. When he thinks about it, and he doesn't, not very often, his life decisions usually settle between debatable and downright dismal. He's not sure where here falls on that spectrum. He tried to stop thinking like that a while ago. The thoughts would have crushed him otherwise. Being here is not as soul-crushing as he imagined it would be. Not as soul-crushing as what preceded it. Captain Flint was murdered. James got to live for it. And with every shovelful of earth he moves, it feels like he's burying him deeper and deeper into oblivion, where he belongs. "'except he's not so naive as to believe that some things can ever be truly buried. "'Nor does he want to bury them. Not anymore. "'Flint belonged to a time that is now gone. "'But he doesn't want to forget the terror, the dreams, the possibilities. "'He can't forget Nassau, or New Providence, or the Walrus, "'or the people who inhabited those places. "'People he hated, people he killed, people he loved.' and lost there's a time in a man's life when he sits down and looks at the steps taken that brought him to the present point when James adds and subtracts everything he finds that he subtracts far far more than he adds the net worth is in the negatives yet despite that here he is because his decision was made for him and that had been the greatest subtraction James McGraw minus Flint equals the end But the end of something is the beginning of something else, not something good or bad or beneficial or doomed, just something different. History will give it a label, if it's worthy, a label in itself. And those who grant those labels won't know a thing about all the dashed potential or the endless possibilities. Everything looks so simple in hindsight, it's easy to forget that nothing is ever as simple as it is told how will his story be told? It won't, he realizes. James McGraw belongs to a nameless mass of living beings that pass through this earth in obscurity and are swept up by time into an eternal silence. The one with the story is Flint, and he knows what Flint will be remembered for. There was a chance once for Flint to become something else, for one to become many for many to rise up like the tides of an unstoppable ocean and sweep the shores of pretend reason and the hypocrisy of civilization. James McGraw, in his time, couldn't see this. Flint could. Only one of them is left alive. Maybe it is wrong to treat himself as two distinct halves with one half a carcass, but there is one simple practical reason for it. James McGraw is known to Thomas Hamilton and loved flint isn't the journey to savannah was uneventful and miserable it was as if he had spent all his rage all his power and all his love and it wasn't enough because they were all unconvincing in the end dashed against a mind with a stronger resolve maybe a bullet to the head would have been merciful a way to end this history of theirs for good but john silver never did what anyone expected when he pointed his gun at flint "'Flint didn't want to believe him. "'He didn't want to believe one word about the plantation "'or about Thomas, "'because Thomas was sacred, "'and Flint wouldn't defile everything they'd been fighting for "'with such novelesque plot twists. "'But it wasn't a novel. "'It was real. "'Thomas was sacred, but he wasn't dead. "'Now he's right there, "'holding a shovel not like an English lord, "'but like the most common peasant, "'face reddish from the sun,' "'eyes squinting. "'His hair is still short, but lighter. "'His face is prickly from his sparse silver beard, "'and his clothes are baggy and worn. "'In his eyes he carries a silence "'that speaks to the years he spent here, "'years during which he learned to speak less "'and of no great matters, "'a silence James hasn't quite addressed or breached yet, "'because doing so would involve "'addressing his own history in the process. "'He finds that it is not an easy thing to do, It has always scared him, opening up to Thomas, even though there was nothing to fear. No, it wasn't fear that stopped him. Miranda was the one who named it. It was shame. Because fear can be good and vital to survival. Shame only births misery. Back then he was ashamed of his love. Now he is ashamed of his actions. Actions that, without a cause to back them, are now nothing more than futile cruelties and hideous crimes. "'He can't quite own up to any of it, not yet. "'The killing cut is still too fresh and too painful.' "'Instead, he turns his mind to more immediate concerns, "'something he finds no difficulty with "'as he grows accustomed to the way of life in this place. "'Right now they're toiling the earth, "'preparing to plant potatoes. "'Corn has already been planted, "'and they've begun to plant out the squashes, "'onion, garlic, and other vegetables in the gardens.' The land is buzzing, fertile and warm. When you give something to the sea, it takes it and secures it in its cold, lightless depths. When you give something to the earth, it gives it back, green, lush, and vibrant. All his life he ran to the sea. But when all was said and done, when his life had run its course, he didn't want to be entombed in it, to be mangled by the fishes and whatnot— until all that was left of him were bones. He wanted to be laid down into a hole and covered in darkness, from which something alive might sprout. Anyhow, most of his time in this place is spent working. Oglethorpe was adamant that this community should be as self-sufficient as possible, and provided good resources to make that happen. Now, it was its occupants who had to make sure it all ran smoothly. Some of them worked in the fields, others with animals— Every now and then, he heard, they'd change their stations, rotating them with the seasons. And really, it's hard to think about anything beyond the immediate present when you're in constant motion. The past becomes a distant dream, the future undefinable, the present endless. The work is not nearly as easy as it seems. In all his life, he'd never worked on a farm, and his hands know how to wield swords, pistols, and oars, not shovels and farming tools. So unlike the rest of the folk here, he tires out faster and keeps his head down to hide the sweat dripping down his forehead long before it is time for rest. Since when was digging this difficult? A hand on his shoulder stops him in his tracks, and he snaps his head up. You're doing it wrong, Thomas says, and positions his shovel at a lower angle, moving over chunks of the ground to make neat little rows. Like this. James imitates the motion and is rewarded with a nod and a silent smile before Thomas is back at his row. By lunchtime, they've managed to dig it all up and plant the tubers, and James's spine doesn't feel like it's about to pop out of his body. He might get used to this, he thinks, with cold dread in his stomach. He doesn't know any of the people here. He sees them and hears their names, but he makes no effort to speak with any of the men who are being kept here. He was told that they are sons of important families, but even back in the day, he didn't pay them much mind, and he certainly wouldn't know if he knew any one of them in his past life. They know what Thomas and he are. Well, it would be hard for them not to, when the first thing they did upon seeing each other was to kiss. Until he kissed him, James wasn't sure if Thomas was even real. He had seen Miranda standing by his side many, many times, and she seemed to draw breath, but she would turn into mist, the moment he reached out. He thought the same would happen with Thomas, but he remained solid and close and real. That and almost half of them are just the same. Oglethorpe pays it no mind, and it's not out of benevolence or agreement. He just doesn't. After all, you can get away with a lot when the eyes of the world are averted, and that is true anywhere. The matter of the fact is that Alfred Hamilton would have found a way to remove Thomas Either way, the affair with James provided a good opportunity to deal with what was essentially a political animosity. His son was too big of a liability, and they called James a monster. It's strange, this openness and its inconsequentiality. It makes this place feel all the more unreal, and James wonders whether he might have actually died there on Skeleton Island, and whether this is an afterlife of some sort. He imagines there wouldn't be just Thomas and him if it were, though. Although he imagines he won't be spending his afterlife where the two of them will, either. They cook for themselves here, too. He hopes to God he'll be far too dulled out by this place to feel anything by the time he's assigned kitchen duty. It's some sort of stew they're having today. No meat. He's been told there's only meat for Christmas and Easter, but it is a hearty enough mix of grains and vegetables with wheat bread on the side, that is actually far more decent than he could have imagined. It's fresh, and still retains some of its morning warmth. He'd forgotten that taste after years of hardtack and half-stale black bread on board. It is a good meal, and at least he's comforted by the fact that the gaunt sleekness of Thomas' face is not a consequence of malnourishment. They all eat together in a common hall, a huge room with eight long wooden tables stretching from one end to the other, Curiously, their wardens eat with them, but they're placed at their own table at the head of the room. None carry any weapons, nor do they look particularly frightening. Aside from their uniform, they might pass as the rest of them easily enough. Nobody ever makes a move on them. Nobody wants to. After all, there is nothing outside this place but wilderness. True, unmapped wilderness, unknown to the European man that hides dangers that are best left in the dark. Even if anyone managed to escape, where would they go? And if they depose their wardens, what would they change? Their lives would just be made that much harder. All things considered, this cage is the kindest place for them. Yet it is a cage, nonetheless. Therefore, no one speaks to the guards. Nor do the guards ever attempt to speak to them. They just share the space and inhabit their own spheres of silence. Thomas asks nothing. He's always been a patient man, almost to his own detriment, especially when it came to someone as stubborn—and oblivious—as James. Now James is grateful for this silence, and for the fact that all these years haven't blotted out that patience of his. If anything, they've made it more profound. It isn't until afternoon has bled into dusk and they've all left their work for the day that Thomas pulls him aside with a quiet beckon and leads him to the very edge of the property, "'which is a fair walk away from where they all sleep, "'to where the wall of grasses blends with the forest, "'looming and lush. "'It is a quiet place, which feels superfluous to say. "'It is all quiet here, "'but the silence here feels lighter somehow. "'Nobody really minds where we go "'and how we choose to spend our leisure time. "'As long as the work is done,' Thomas says. "'And I find this is a good place to think. "'We're here to think?' "'Thomas chuckles.' if you want to. This place is different from London, different from New Providence, and different from the jungle of Skeleton Island. The forest here reminds him of something more primeval and hauntingly familiar, a place he might have known in his early childhood where all memories have long erased themselves, and those that remain hang around like faint smoke after the candlelight is long gone out. As if on instinct, he throws himself on the bed of grass, and looks up in the orange-purple sky, another day passing into night, and with him still alive to witness it. The sky will continue to change in cycles after he's swallowed by the earth, and it is a comforting thought. He failed, but there are those who will not. Maybe they're not here now, at this moment, but there will come a day when they will stand under this same sky, and they won't fail. As long as the world keeps going... There will come someone who will not fail. And if there can be liberty for a day, for a year, for an age, then it will have meant something, this endless cycle that is so much greater than what a human life can encompass. Thomas sits down next to him. The tall grasses rustle around them. This place felt unreal when I first got here. After the asylum, it felt like an afterlife of sorts. His voice moves in tandem with the rustling of the grass. "'It feels like a lullaby. "'I couldn't think about anything in that place. "'About you. "'About Miranda. "'It would have locked a part of your memories "'into its miserable walls, "'and then I wouldn't be able to think about you at all. "'So I endured in solitude. "'I left only a part of myself there. "'But I kept you. "'And when I got here, "'when there was nothing left to me "'but to live out the rest of my days in silence, "'I would sit here and think of you.' Where you might be, were you taking care of each other? Were you thinking of me as well? I imagined you somewhere, maybe living just like me, somewhere quiet. And in those moments, I felt less lonely, with at least the thought of you. It's good that James has closed his eyes, because he can feel tears starting to well up. Thomas has been here, has been here all along, and had James known... Had he taken the time to know, had he caught wind of this place, he would have sailed in a rowboat if he had to. All these years, they were so much closer than they thought. But he had banished Thomas from his mind to quell the pain. And now here they are, again. Just two. Missing one. Just like he can't open his eyes, he can't voice this, either. At least, not in words. He feels the grass next to him shift, and he feels a weight over him, and a warm breath over his lips. I didn't think I would see you ever again, and I thought I would be all right after a while, but now that I see you, I missed you so much, James. That's what breaks him. Ten years' worth of tears flow down his face and soak into the ground as Thomas kisses them away with ten years' worth of patience and it is under him that James lets himself be unmade again, like all those years ago, and put back together with the gentle touch of a man he loves. He loved him. He loves him. He loves him more than he'll ever be able to say or think. He can just feel it down to the marrow of his bones, and it feels like life, and it feels like death, a moment under the indigo sky so unique to the two of them and so universal in all of time recorded and unrecorded. One same universal feeling since the Song of Songs. James lets himself be enveloped in it and take in its life affirming warmth. Yet comfort wears thin when it is suspended in willfully maintained silence. They can embrace like nothing has changed, and that is comforting, but only in so far to provide the courage to speak. The stars are alight by the time Thomas turns to James and asks. Why are you here, James? I was brought here in misfortune. That is known to you. His gaze lingers, not quite on James's eyes, but somewhere to the side. On the metal earring, James realizes, the metal earring that he is still wearing. Thomas's eyes are intent, but gentle. What misfortune brought you here? And what misfortunes have you weathered since we last saw each other? James gulps. He kept quiet, because he could not find the words to bear himself and condemn himself in Thomas's eyes. But as merciful as Thomas is with him, he deserves to know, not just about him, but about Miranda as well. Jesus, how is he going to tell him about Miranda? A thought comes to his mind, words that were directed to him once. "'Thomas knows of James all that he can bear to be known. "'He understands that statement better now. "'But if he doesn't say it, it will kill him. "'The past will choke him and breed resentment and rage "'and he will split himself again. "'But he won't survive another schism. "'It's a long story,' he says, "'and I don't trust myself to be able to say it all at once.' and telling it all at once would dishonor the memory of those I speak of. Thomas nods. Yet, that is not all that's keeping you from telling it, is it? James lets out a long exhale. (sighs) Though I am here, I am not the man you once knew. And I worry that the man you'll come to know through the history I'm about to tell you will abhor you. And he could not survive that. Thomas shakes his head. "'and his face turns dark and sullen. "'For a moment he looks angry. "'Who am I, James?' "'James blinks. "'You're you,' he says. "'You're Thomas. "'There were times when I did not believe that, "'when I thought myself so changed, so deformed, "'so stripped down of all I thought to be my nature and my purpose. "'But you still say that I am Thomas. "'And so you are still James.' "'Because even in those moments when I did not know myself, I knew you. "'So there is nothing in you that I can abhor.' "'He smiles. "'James returns the smile. "'I'll tell you,' he promises. "'Everything. "'What did Odysseus say to Penelope when he came back to Ithaca? "'And what did Achilles say to Patroclus when they met in the afterlife? "'Both as mere shadows of what they once were.' "'only kept alight by the love they shared. "'What do you say after, I'm home? "'When you find that home is not as you left it, "'because you are not as you were before. "'When it is time to reconcile with the hard truths "'and consequences of all that you have done. "'Have mercy on me. "'Know that what I tell you is of the past "'and that it has brought me to you. "'So please, have mercy.' Thomas nods. The days have been steadily growing longer ever since James got here, and so have their work hours. Summer is approaching, and soon after, it will be time for harvest. It's fascinating, watching the seasons change. Everything is blooming and vibrant, and the sun beats down on them all the stronger. Nassau was always the same, but the people were different. Here, the people don't change with the seasons. When he first came here, he expected that the place would be run like a prison. It seems more like a boarding school, down to the layout of their dormitories. First of all, they don't all sleep huddled in the same room. While the bathroom is communal, their rooms are shared in pairs. There's naught in them but bare walls and two beds pushed to each side of the small space. But they're actual beds, so it would be ludicrous to try to find fault with them. James hasn't spoken more than five words with the man he shares the room with, who introduced himself as Philip, and nothing more. Nobody ever introduces themselves with anything but their first name here, either because they've grown to resent their family names, or because they simply see that they serve no purpose here. And James knows the importance of a name in high society. To these people, the act of stripping that name might be likened to a first death. His first death was in gaining a name. He's feeling less unmoored now. Much can be borne when the mind is given a routine, and the speed with which a human being can grow accustomed to a new routine is astonishing and terrifying. Accustomed, though not accepting. This place is effectively timeless, isolated from any society, but not so isolated as to be unknown to the crown. And the crown allows only that which is useful to it to exist— How this plantation is useful to it, he cannot quite tell, for the produce is for their own use, and trade is impossible, since the place is supposed to be unknown. He suspects this might be an experiment on Oglethorpe's part, which doesn't put him at ease, since he knows a thing or two about the Crown's view on experiments. James spoke to him once, a few days after he was brought here. "'What we have here, Mr. McGraw, is not a penitentiary centre or an asylum.' I am of the mind that history judges civilizations by how they treat their outcasts. I find it bears more resemblance to charity. All these men possess noble souls and aren't savages. As such, wouldn't it be more beneficial to employ them in honest work, rather than have them waste away? Though you are outcasts, the light of reason shines in you yet, as you are descendants of civilization. Others can't see it, but I can. So no. This place is not meant to punish. It is meant to rehabilitate and thrive. I'm not doing this for myself, but for the greater good. I hope you understand that during your stay with us. Non sibi said Alice. It was inscribed on the gates of this place. Not for oneself, but for others. For the greater good. The greater good is something James knows well. And it is a wonder how many swear by it, and how those who are at odds are fighting for the same greater good. It's the same in name only, though, because people fight for what they know, for the security of the past, for the illusion of stability. But the greater good is sometimes to break that security and expose how fragile it is. The greater good you might never see, blood-soaked, scorched earth that will one day be a field of red poppies. James thinks about home and freezes when images of New Providence appear in his mind, images of a Nassau reformed, and of remnants of a raised house. They were outcasts there, and they made their own space. Here the Empire has made a space for those it once removed, like a corral for animals. Then again, what difference is there between the two? This place and Nassau exist because of England. England needs this place, and it needs Nassau, because civilization needs its monsters. In fighting them, It defines its own existence and affirms its own identity. The new world did not exist before because the old world laid no claim to it. It did not need it to build its own identity. The new world is a blank slate where all the symptoms of the old one are made evident in its endless forward movement to dispel the dark, to spread the light of reason, their reason. But this place is not dark, This place had a life of its own, a history of its own, a people of its own, a people deemed soulless and savage, uncivilized, because just as there is one God in the heavens, there is only one correct way to be on earth, and all else is to be purified, purged, enlightened. James believed this once. He believed his way to be the right one. He knows now that it is not so. And he wonders how much more blood will be spilt and land taken and raised in a futile quest to spread the rot of reason. And wonders what weeds will grow out of that ground. God damn it all. God damn this place. God damn their reason. The division between who is deemed human and who animal. He thought Flint was all his anger. But James is pretty angry by himself as well. But James is so much lesser than Flint... James betrayed that part of himself, and that is why he is here. He wanted peace, didn't he? Here it is. He tells a story to Thomas in the evenings, in what he comes to regard as their spot. It feels strange to recount it, after all the events have become muddled in his mind, with only a few key moments standing out like points of light, to which the rest of the memories rush to like flies. It takes effort, first to order his thoughts— then to get them out somewhat coherently. He hasn't done this since... Well, since he and Silver buried that damn treasure. He tells Thomas about the voyage he and Miranda took to New Providence, and the new name he took on. Our purpose was to save Nassau, and that failed. At that time I was enraged. All I wanted was to get back at England and show them how blind they all were. I wanted to make them beg for forgiveness, and so I took on a crew and a new name. He tells him about Flint and his grandfather. That name became a noose the moment I took it. I wasn't a good captain. I was never meant to lead. But I needed men to follow me. So I did what I could. Thomas turns to him with a stunned expression. You were Captain Flint. James's heart stops in his chest. So Thomas does know Flint as well. I... I was. Thomas says nothing for a good while. Pensive. "'I was told that my father was cut down by a man called Flint, "'the most fearsome and cruel pirate of New Providence. "'That was you. "'Comfort wears thin eventually. "'The truth will dash it. "'James knows this. "'Yes, it was. "'The silence is palpable. "'By that time they told us she died. "'When we heard of the Maria Lane, "'I couldn't leave him alive. "'He had to pay.' "'Thomas still says nothing.' He looks troubled, but when he does speak, his voice is mild and non-accusatory. I always thought that it was ironic that he perished by a pirate's hand. And to think he perished by your hand? Thomas shakes his head. What a sad man. His demons caught up to him, and you were a demon of his making. Demons. Monsters. They're all fiction until they come at you with a cutlass in hand. And Lord Hamilton did indeed believe Flint to be a fiction— and had long expelled any notion of James McGraw out of his mind. Did he recognize you? James doesn't remember all the people he's killed, but he remembers him. And even in his blind rage, he remembers the way Hamilton's eyes shone before he cut him down. And it wasn't just mortal terror. They do say your life flashes before your eyes before you die, after all. And Hamilton had realized his greatest mistake in his last moment on this earth. He did good james tells thomas of his misdeeds he doesn't remember half of the people he's killed but he feels their weight on his soul he tells him of the walrus of its sails and guns and crew thinking on it it's a wonder there was only one mutiny then again gates was always there to cover for him twist tales and promises and keep the people in line gates his friend whom he killed when he would no longer keep the people in line. I killed my friend. I didn't want to do it, but I did it. Hal Gates was his friend at a time when James did not want friends or liabilities. In the end, he proved exactly why James should have kept his distance, or maybe why he shouldn't have kept it. He never told Gates a thing about himself. He wondered a few times afterwards how it all might have played out, had he taken that risk. But such what-ifs make the reality of the situation that much worse. And James has done so many awful things that if there ever is such a thing as a final judgment, it will take whatever celestial judge he has put before a week to list off half of his misdeeds. Out of that multitude, this one is among those that hurt the worst. But he thought it necessary at the time, and so it was done. He supposes what happened to him was necessary as well. He tells Thomas of Nassau, the place that was the nest of their ideals, of the streets and the houses and the people, Richard and Eleanor Guthrie, other pirates, Charles Vane, Edward Teach. You knew Blackbeard? Thomas asks in disbelief. James scoffs. I got my ass handed to me by him. I suspect he was different from what we would hear about him in London. We all were. Every man is a man, no matter how much his name precedes him. Thomas smirks. I suppose you would know about that. Does he? Truth be told, he thought a name change would change him as well. But he finds that one cannot really change oneself or replace the materials he's made of. A name can only bring out those materials, some of which have been unknown, to the forefront, and reveal the true quality of the man behind the label. He must be getting old. He finds his sentences tapering off into silence, not of his own will, and finds himself contemplating more than he ever has, which is hard to believe, even to him. But Thomas doesn't push. After all, the sun can't force tides. Only the moon can. And it's a moonless night. He doesn't see Miranda in his dreams anymore. There is no boat and no river and no white shore. She told him he would have to let her go at the end. But he doesn't feel like that end has come. He's still alive, isn't he? But the evening breeze is gentle as her voice, and the summer thunderstorms are as harsh as her anger. The moon shines white as the whites of her eyes, her eyes that were open when she... No, he doesn't see Miranda in his dreams anymore. But he sees memories of her. It doesn't make recounting them any easier. The history takes shape as he tells it. Only now does he perceive the full cause and effect, the push and pull of consequences that, at the time, seemed like one disaster after another. They very much were, but hindsight makes some lighter and others worse. He remembers the hope he felt, and it makes their eventual downfall that much more bitter. Yes, even at that time did he feel hope, but it's the kind of hope one might feel when you're reading a novel they don't know the ending of a hope that will turn to ashes when met with an ending that has already been written and decided, an ending that you cannot change. He raised Charlestown to the ground, but it still smolders inside him. He left Miranda there, buried in the debris, and so it will haunt him till he's dead. It's a hard story to tell, and he didn't want to tell it. He makes an exception for Thomas, of course, because as a story, it sounds so distant, He tells it as a report, then. He doesn't want to color what happened with his emotions or impressions, or at least in the smallest degree possible. He couldn't tell it otherwise. Thomas listens, rapt and motionless, his emotions evident only in his eyes. He takes the account of Peter Ash's betrayal reasonably well, unlike the account of Miranda's untimely demise. And when they're left with the sight of the burning remains of Charlestown, neither Thomas nor James speak for a good while. They just sit in the moonlight, each grappling with memories of their own, memories with the same protagonist. Thomas had been married to Miranda for ten years by the time James met them, and James spent ten years with her. She loved them both. James remembers her warnings in London still. Before everything ended, She saw the ending, and yet she kept going, and she stayed by his side. Maybe she saw the ending the moment she noticed that clock in Ash's dining room. She'd been keeping her rage controlled till that point, unlike him, for she knew that the moment she released it would be her last, and when she did release it, it was to save James and free herself. But she couldn't do either, and James couldn't do anything to protect her. It was his fault. She never should have gone with him. I'm glad she was with you, James, Thomas says after a while. Miranda is. Miranda was strong. If the two of you were together, then I know that I didn't have to worry. I knew that you would be all right. And I thought, hoped that you'd find peace. He sighs. But it doesn't work that way, does it? "'James shakes his head. "'I couldn't accept that kind of peace.' "'Thomas smiles sadly. "'Don't you see? "'The two of you have the same rage, "'the same fire. "'Odd pairs work well "'when there are opposites to balance each other out. "'But the two of you were kindred spirits. "'I suppose that's why it had to be the three of us. "'In New Providence, "'it was James and Miranda and a ghost. "'Here, "'it is James and Thomas and a ghost.' They're not two. They never were. They are three. Always three. Always missing one. He wonders what she would say now, had she lived to see Thomas again. But that would not have been possible had she lived. Hell is being forced to choose between two inevitabilities. What is it, then, to live through two inevitabilities without the ability to choose? That's just life, it seems. She loved you, Thomas says softly. Very much. I suppose you know that better than I. James smiles sadly. She loved you too. I couldn't mention you. She was the one who brought you out. Miranda preserved your memory better than I ever could have. She preserved Thomas's memory and James's name. Did he ever acknowledge that? Did he ever take the time to see that? When I lost her, James continues, I lost myself as well. Nothing I did made any sense anymore. Living as I did was a lost cause. He smirks bitterly. I wasn't a person, Thomas. I was a monster. A monster. Made of his worst instincts, and given free rein willingly. Maybe in the eyes of some, Thomas concedes. But what twists men's souls isn't monstrosity. It's misfortune. Grief. Things that may be in your reach to control and minimize, or things that are out of it completely. I used to believe that when a man can hold himself accountable for that which he can control, and accept that which he cannot, he can never be warped. Do you believe it still? In some ways. I think I would have perished a long time ago if I didn't, although I've learned that some things ought not to be ever accepted in exchange for placidity. Glowing in the moonlight, his face looks benevolent, saintly almost. Such as? Hopelessness. Laws. Shame. Thomas Hamilton would know no shame, because he was true to himself and true to the ones he loved, and so he could not believe life out of reach of hope or make peace with that which others dictated his common sense. James has loved him for a long time now, but hearing him speak reminds him why it came to be so. How do you live with your grief, then? Thomas's eyes twinkle with experience you let it be your companion, he says, and you keep love close by. The bad will come to you unbidden, but you must bring up the good and cherish it. He purses his lips, then smiles reassuringly. When I first met Miranda, I was scared witless. I wasn't too thrilled about any of my potential matches or marriage at all. I just spent time in my books and writings as far from the world as possible, and I was keen to get rid of anyone who might interrupt that by talking to them to death about whatever came to my mind. He chuckles. I was quite an unpleasant person, to say the least. James hasn't ever heard this story. In his mind, he tries to imagine this younger, more abrasive Thomas. Funnily enough, he can sort of see it. She was stunning. I think she was wearing orange or yellow. It stood out. She smiled, and suddenly... "'I was scared. "'I knew then that my tactics wouldn't work. "'So I didn't speak to her at all. "'She was the one who finally approached me.' "'He smiles now, eyes distant, "'as if he can really see her in that moment. "'She said that if I should be so inclined to be rude, "'that at least I shouldn't be dull as well. (laughs) "'And from our conversation henceforth, "'I knew I wanted nobody else but her for a lifelong companion. "'Until you came along.' "'James finds that he is smiling as well.' It's funny to imagine both of them young, and not yet as the unshakable duo he met them as. Thomas looks at him. Now it's your turn. Bring it up. Live with your grief. And keep love close by. Cold shivers start at the back of James's neck, and they've got nothing to do with the cold night air. Images come to his mind unbidden. Red warm blood, the whites of her eyes, the pallor of her skin in the coffin— The ash, the blood, the guns firing, the boat, the distant shore. A ghost, a corpse, a shadow. And he sees her, in the Barlow house, setting plates on the wooden table, hair pulled back in a simple worn beige dress. The memory is like a painting, oil and pigments moving in a mass of abstract shapes. Her face illuminated by candlelight, painted in chiaroscuro, with long, dramatic shadows. He's come back after three weeks at sea. He found himself at the wrong end of a cutlass and almost had his height altered by a head's length. But he won't tell her that. She's smiling and he's at peace. He's only ever at peace here. She's saying something to him, or she's reading, sometimes singing. When he wakes in the middle of the night, drenched in cold sweat and tears, she hums. "'Sometimes she's just there, and that's all that matters. "'Then he sees her in a royal green gown, "'hair done up in coils and curls, bejeweled, regal. "'She sits by him as she tells him to be careful, "'and her eyes are so knowing and honest "'they might as well be his own. "'Then he sees her from across the table, "'in dim light, after a ruined dinner, "'and suddenly he's trapped between her and Thomas.' Two states of being he has kept separate all his life. "'And though he did kiss Thomas, he regrets it. "'No, he fears what it means, because it was an honest kiss. "'He makes up a flimsy excuse and rushes out, "'heart beating as if he's half dead from a pursuit. "'Thomas flinches and huffs out a laugh. "'God, I thought I'd ruined it all then,' he says. "'You looked bewildered. "'Even now James remembers the feeling well.' like a free fall, a dive into the depths he always glanced at but never dared approach, a simple sweeping answer to all his questions. He was stupefied. But he didn't make it to the door before they stopped him. How did she say it then? You're a good man, James, Thomas echoes. He remembers it well. You're both good men, and if you would love each other as good men, then there could be no reproach in it from me. "'nor shame from you. "'I don't think I'll ever forget those words. "'And from then on, it was the three of them. "'And they were happy for a while. "'And though he'll never be as happy as he was back then, "'James was happy with her "'in those quiet moments in the Barlow house. "'Just like he's happy now, "'saying these things after keeping them locked up "'for far, far too long. "'Foolishly, he hopes she can hear it "'and know that they haven't forgotten her. "'Foolishly, He hopes there will come a time, or place beyond time, where the three of them will meet again. Until then, they exchange memory after memory in the brisk night air. The next morning, James wakes up with a cough that aches in his very lungs. He feels sluggish and worn, not at all like one ought to feel after sleeping the whole night, something that he has come to count as a success in and of itself. He brushes it off, and gets up all the same, doubling over in a cough as he does, but he does manage to get himself out into the fields. He doesn't even realize what has happened when he looks at the sky, and the blinding flash of sunlight becomes pitch black. He blinks, just for a moment, and when he opens his eyes, it's not the sky he sees but a circle of heads, with varying expressions of worry and distress. It's Thomas and Philip who put him on his feet and march him to the infirmary. By then, the world is spinning, and he feels so very tired. You're burning up, Thomas says in tandem with the doctors. You can leave him to me. Get back to your work. The doctor is a sallow, gray-skinned man with thin hands and long knuckled fingers. His touch is cool against James's blazing forehead, and the man frowns. Fever, he mumbles. He holds up four fingers in front of James. How many fingers am I holding up? James can't quite get the words out. "'Delirium,' the doctor mumbles again, and disappears. When he's back, he's carrying a tiny wooden dish that he brings up to James's dry lips and bids him to drink whatever the hell is inside. James does so about as well as he can. Mostly, he just swallows what the doctor is pouring into his mouth, and winces from the bitterness. It could be poison, for all he knows. Maybe the sick are a liability here. Maybe they're tranquilized and put down like lame horses.' Sure enough, his vision begins to blur, and his grip on consciousness recedes. Well, at least he's glad he got to tell Thomas what happened to Miranda. He could have told him he loved him, too. But James wasn't given poison. He does wake up eventually, as dusk settles around him, and the pain inside his skull and the rest of his body has subsided. But he still feels sluggish. There's something cool and wet touching his forehead. He opens his eyes and turns his head to see Thomas, dabbing a wet cloth onto his forehead. The doctor says you've got a nasty cold, he says. Could have developed pneumonia if you let it be. I suppose this climate is harsher than Nassau's. It's just different, James slurs. That's all it takes. The difference throws off the body. He remembers the first months in Nassau. First it was him who got ill. It wasn't too bad since he was somewhat used to the area from his previous expeditions. Still, he forbade Miranda from entering his room, something she flatly ignored. She got sick just as he got better, some kind of tropical fever that hollowed out her face to the point James feared for her survival. He didn't move from her bedside till her fever had subsided. She was well after two weeks, but weakened. It took her an entire month to recover. Neither of them fell ill after that one time, though. New Providence gave them a warm welcome, they survived, and then it left them alone. It seems that Savannah is the same. You scared me. If you didn't feel well, you should have gone to the infirmary immediately. I'm fine now, Thomas nods. The doctor said you'll rest here for a few days, and I'll be here whenever I can. Say, would you like to eat? Have some soup, though it's cooled a bit. Though it's a labor, James lifts himself up and wills himself to swallow the clear liquid, spoonful by spoonful. He hasn't eaten a thing since yesterday, and he just spent the entirety of the day in a fever dream. The energy boost is nearly instantaneous. James doesn't like being sick, or bedridden, or nursed. But he can't protest, because he also can't quite move yet. So he lets himself doze off again, as Thomas dabs his forehead and recites something from memory. James can't quite pay attention to the words, instead focusing on the rhythm and cadence of Thomas's voice. And, sure enough, he's pulled back into sleep again. He's not sure he's dreaming until he feels the dampness of the tropical air condensating on his skin, mixing with sweat, dirt, and blood that cake his face in layers and finds himself staring at the wrong end of a gun. Ah, he knows where he is. He didn't think he'd see him in his dreams, though sure enough, he always knew how to take advantage of James's weakness. Could he have said anything to change his mind? Should he have just let him shoot him? Should James have just shot him, and have him be another victim of the greater good? No, that couldn't have been ever. James would rather have pulled the gun on himself, just like there could be no peace for Thomas, Miranda, and James without each other. There is no balance between Silver, Maudie, and Flint if one of them is gone. No peace, no war. But in this dream, Silver does fire. James snaps awake and finds that the tropical condensation is the cold sweat dispelling his fever. It's the dead of night, but when he turns, Thomas is there. "'slumped over a chair by his bedside, fast asleep. "'What is James doing here? "'Aside from dying from a fucking cold?' "'A terrifying thought occurs to him. "'Had Silver not done what he did, this wouldn't have happened. "'The war would have happened. "'And maybe they'd all get blown to bits in the port of Nassau. "'Or maybe they'd win and then get blown to bits "'once the British Navy came back to take what it claimed as its own. "'Or maybe, just maybe... They wouldn't have gotten blown to bits. He never would have seen Thomas again. He wouldn't even know he's alive. And he would have been fine with that. Because he didn't go to Savannah only because he loves Thomas Hamilton. He didn't even believe Silver, not until he saw Thomas in front of him. He went because, as always, love was his undoing. The history of Long John Silver is the history of their ill-fated war. James doesn't find the strength to tell it until he's recovered all his physical strength, which takes him the better part of a week. When he's back on his feet, and back in the fields, he is given knowing looks and friendly nods. Ah, so that is the initiation ritual of this place. It is strange that out of everything that he's told so far, he finds this story the most confusing to put into words. Then again... Silver's very presence is an absence in and of itself. Around him, logic moves in a different way, as if to account for a force that is at the same time present and non-existent. Not realizing this was Flint's demise. Once again, he reports, the hope he felt at that time feels much fresher now, still palpable, still warm, and he is careful not to reignite it. James would have given him and Mahdi everything. All that he worked for, all his dreams, all the blood he spilled. He would have laid his life down. He did. John Silver looked at it and did not accept it. Did he even look at it? Could he see Nassau at all? Could he see James and Mahdi, or was it just his devotion that blinded him? James thought he could talk him out of it. But when two wills are equally as strong, the one that wins is usually the one that holds a gun. No, Silver did see him, and Maudie, and their future. He could see it all, and he knew that he would never allow any of it to come to pass. Silver chose them, and in choosing them, he lost them both. Thomas listens, without interrupting once. "'I wanted to fight the world,' James says. "'Nassau would have been the beginning of a tidal wave, and we could have proven to all those empires that they did not own us. All they do is take. It was time for us to reclaim what was taken.' Ah, there it is, the smouldering coals inside him, crackling and coming to life with each word he says. "'Flint may have started this journey because of the injustice he suffered and the people he lost, "'but the war was not only his own. "'The war belonged to the many, "'to all those who could not find prosperity and happiness under the imperial yoke. "'In London, he thought that pardons would bring pirates back to England and that all would be well. "'In Charlestown, he thought a self-governed Nassau could strike a compromise.' Afterwards, he realized there could be no compromise. The empire itself was wrong, in discord with the very notion of freedom. And all his and Thomas's notions felt so childish and naive in the light of this very simple fact. A man cannot see beyond the limits of a system while within it, Thomas sighs. And for all our ideas, I suppose that was the fundamental error of it all yet I cannot see past it yet. I know it is not inevitable, and that it is doomed to crumble and fall like all the empires before it. But I cannot see any new shapes, just darkness. If Thomas Hamilton cannot see past the darkness, who can? Then again, he was always moving in daylight. He never got to get out of the system he knew his entire life. And if James knows something, it is that the system must first be revealed and dismantled within oneself. It is only then that one can see the world clearly. It can be done, James says. I've seen it. I've lived it. And I did not understand it at first, but few people can. After a while, I believed in it. A world without England is possible, and that is what is inevitable. Thomas smiles. I wonder whether I would have made a good pirate. I would have very much liked to see that world. James shakes his head. There are no good pirates, he says, himself included. What humanity there is within them. It is extinguished by desperation. But it might have been changed. Might have been. Some of them were scoundrels, yes, complete cutthroats without any ounce of civility or human kindness, but most of them were just letting themselves be swayed and carried by the sea in whichever direction to survive and making something of it. After a while, though, a life that comes down to mere survival is no different than that of a slave bound to uncontrollable forces. "'Do you regret it, then?' Thomas asks." what coming here does he no he doesn't but there is one thing he does regret I regret not convincing him that is what I regret Thomas looks into the distance you loved him he says simply didn't you James trembles he did it crept up on him but he did Not like Thomas, not like Miranda, but then again, no love is like another. When there was no one he could tie himself to, and when he sought to sink himself and forget, Silver kept him alive. Until James found a new purpose, and then he followed him. Silver gave him his support, his devotion, and his true friendship, yet he never let himself be known for anything but his immediate actions. What did James grow to love then? He believed him to be good, loyal, and steadfast. But he never did know him. Not really. What would he tell him, if he saw him again? He told him all there was to tell. He'd just ask him a question. A question that Silver would probably echo right back at him. Are you happy? And they'd both have the same answer. I don't know. James shudders. I wish it were different, he murmurs. He wishes he didn't have to cut off parts of his conscience just to be able to live with himself. He's butchered himself beyond recognition throughout his life, and all for nothing. He doesn't know what the point was. Here, the answer is only ever more elusive. He wanted Thomas. He wanted Miranda. He wanted peace. He wanted war. He wanted to lead. He wanted to run away. He wanted to convince Silver. He was glad he didn't manage it. He hates this place. He is at peace here. So many contradictions straining the idea of his very identity. The high tide and the low tide pushing and pulling. And yet it is all the same sea. Thomas sighs and leans on his shoulder. Maybe I am selfish in my happiness at having you here. But I won't deny it. Still, I'd like to have seen that world of yours. Then he laughs bitterly. And it sounds like he's crying. Strange, isn't it? This reality where you're here with me, and the other one, where we never see each other again, both make just as much sense to me. Had I remained a ghost, things would have been different for you. I never wanted to be a noose to you. But it seems that's what I am. Captain Flint escaped the noose many times. But the one he couldn't escape was Thomas Hamilton. And Captain Flint is a noose to James McGraw. Had Thomas remained a ghost, Silver would have shot him and buried him next to the cache. Love makes the world and unmakes it. Blesses and damns in equal measure. Maybe. James acquiesces, but maybe it must be so. To choose between two inevitabilities is hell, but damn it, maybe there is a way to find something down the middle, or maybe the two can coexist. He is the living proof. Captain Flint was supposed to be dead, buried. James hated him so, and he wouldn't miss him, but under any name, he is not something foreign and distant from him. "'It is himself, the past, the present, and whatever future he's got left. "'Who knows what will come of it?' he murmurs. "'How much suffering could have been averted had we succeeded? "'How many more centuries will follow, and how many more will lay their lives down? "'How many won't even get that chance? "'But it had to have meant something. "'It can't all be undone. "'What does it matter in the end?' What can he do here, powerless and unknown? His time is past and he is spent. In time, his hands will come to know the shovel more than the sword or an oar. And one day, he won't even be able to hold the shovel. And then, nothing. The silence. The distant shore. He hopes he'll die before Thomas, in his sleep, if only because he wants someone else to carry on with his story for just a while longer, before it is extinguished forever. It can't be undone, Thomas says, not to console him. He believes it. There will always be those who will ask, but what if it were different? What lies in the dark, they'll ask, and that's where we will be, James smiles. You don't fear it, the dark. Thomas shakes his head. Once it has been illuminated, there is nothing to fear, and someone will do so, and they will care, because they will be the same as we are. A hundred years from now, or who knows how far, but they're out there, waiting for us. A fight not across space, but across time as well. James thinks about these brethren from the future, and it comforts him. I've had enough of this world, he sighs. I'm tired, Thomas. Thomas nods. Then rest, he says. And James lies down onto the grass again, lays his head in Thomas's lap, and thinks of nothing. When his time comes, he'll see his life spreading before him like a tapestry. And he'll come to know all the whys and hows, or maybe there will be no answer. But that moment has not yet come. So he slumbers, and listens to the evening songbirds, not for others, but for himself. Today I got to sit down with Eva, a.k.a. Blue Trees, the delightful author of this fic who ever so gently extracted my heart through my nostrils. Fully a third of my recording session was comprised of cry breaks, and it's all thanks to her. As soon as I read this story, I knew I simply had to feature it on the pod. And when I learned that Eva was barely two months out from completing her first watch of Black Sails and already coming with fistfuls of insight and just a complete lock on the characterizations of James and Thomas, I was equal parts jealous, astonished, and exceedingly grateful yet again for this absolutely remarkable fandom. This interview has everything. Lady Macbeth references, Korean zombie film recommendations, that thing where, you know, a foreign author writes a story in English and it's not their native tongue, but then you talk to them and realize they speak better English than you do and it's a thing that's happened three times now? An SNL Stefan joke and a Reading Rainbow reference. But don't just take my word for it. Let's dive right in. So Eva,
2: welcome to the podcast. It is so fantastic to have you. Hi. Hi. Hello. Oh my gosh. It's such an honor and such a joy to be here. I'm really excited.
1: (laughs) Wonderful. So
2: I'm just going to dive in.
1: Um, You just recently, like very recently, finished watching the series. Um, How did you initially discover Black Sails?
2: Yeah, so... I don't know. I think uh, I heard the first time I heard about Black Sales was a few years ago. I know I sort of saw it on my dashboard on Tumblr, but I never really knew what it was about. And there's this YouTuber that I really like uh, called Rowan Ellis,
3: and Mm. I oh yes,
2: oh and she made a video like uh, the best show you've never seen, and was Black Sales. And sort of, I don't know. I guess I was aware of it. And then only, like, last year, I got into watching TV shows. I mean, I, I really don't like watching TV shows that are longer than a season. I don't have the time I don't for the dedication or any energy. But yeah, last year, I was like, sure, let's give this thing a try. And I watched the <laughs> first five episodes of season one. And I was mm-hmm. like, oh, yeah, that's fine. Then I forgot about it. <laughs> for almost a year. I was like, okay, Black sales done, let's go do other things. And um, in June, or was it end of May, beginning of June, I was like, oh, hey, I have this show on the back burner about pirates, and it might be really good, because at the time I was sort of stressed with work and, and university and everything. I was like, okay, let's give it a shot and I watched the entire thing so I started with episode five so 33 episodes in like two weeks which is unprecedented (laughs) for me (laughs) that is that is a lot (laughs) yeah it's it's a lot especially
1: with a show like this that um, that just packs such an emotional punch so consistently are you okay
2: no. <laughs> look at me. Do I look okay? Do I sound okay? Um I was <laughs> devastated. I think um I think I finished season 3 in 2 days. That's that's oh how Oh gosh. Was. Yeah, and then season 4 I was like, okay, I cannot. I have to take some time otherwise I'm going to go insane, but also I don't want it to end. So, yeah. Yeah. Really yeah. mentally taxing at points. Truly. I watched the Rowan Ellis
1: video as well. I love Rowan. I would love to have Rowan on the podcast, so just oh, a <clears> wow. shout out. So um, and I love the comparison that they make with um, Game of Thrones and mm-hmm. about the, the focus on stories and the ending and everything. It's fantastic. So what is your fandom background? Um, Have you been involved artistically in other fandoms? I know I did see some anime in your AO3 categories there.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, Well, I haven't really been active. I was more passive till like last year or so when I got really... I mean, I... I've been writing fan fiction since I was like 13, but it was usually for myself and it wasn't anything I would publish. I mean, the English was atrocious, shall I say. But yeah, last year, uh, the first quote-unquote active participation in fandom was with this actually Korean uh, drama, uh, this uh, show called Beyond Evil. And, um, so we're talking about Black Sales here. And obviously, I love it. But, uh, if I had, when I first watched Black Sales, I thought to myself, wow, this is like beyond evil for me. So, oh, I adore that show. Uh, and it was really the first thing that I felt this huge passion for and the need to create and interact. And I really met a lot of great friends through it. And I mean, I wrote like, 28 fix in the span of like a year and a half which is also kind of insane that's like my main thing I would say also well some anime of course um I was really into Jojo's Bizarre Adventure in high school that mm-hmm. was my thing and I still have like notebooks with a bunch of stories that I wrote from back then I think I would have a great laugh reading them now <laughs> but also um what else did i do this year some cowboy bebop i love that show it's amazing i don't know maybe you've seen it i haven't The anime isn't really your thing this is more like western and mm-hmm. uh very jazz focused it's got a great soundtrack and i also wrote one fic for this year's uh the last of us hbo show because that oh yeah so captured my heart dearly but yeah
1: episode three
2: episode three baby
1: (laughs) (laughs) I watched it just for episode three and I was not disappointed I cried so hard
2: (laughs) it is absolutely a beautiful hour of television but the whole show I mean I wasn't going to watch it then I saw that Craig Mazin was the showrunner he did Chernobyl as well and I was like oh yeah this is gonna wreck my emotions and once you know it, it did. <laughs> yeah, But yeah. Uh, so as I mentioned, you just recently
1: finished watching Black Sails and immediately started uh, writing fan fiction. What was it about Black Sails or what kind of, what element or moment uh, inspired you to start writing
2: fiction about it? Everything, honestly. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> Yeah, it's a very intense show, but um, let's see. The first one I wrote was about James and Miranda. And I think it was their relationship uh, that really got me thinking and the way uh, the two of them worked together and then the way he was uh, when he lost her. Um, There's just something so very interesting about it because it's this deep love and devotion and it's not um it's a very interesting type of relationship that they have and a whole lot of history and really the part of Black Sales that got me was this backstory of Flint and the build-up to it and the slow reveals where you as the viewer slowly get to understand why he's doing what he's doing and all the things that you saw before suddenly you see in a completely different light and you feel like you understand this frankly maniac better (laughs) (laughs) and really that yeah that is what inspired me specifically like character wise but in general just the The whole story focus of the show, you know, a story about stories. And I think it's just really fertile ground for fans and for just, I mean, for viewers and fans and anyone to dig deeper and just play with it, you know, see what works, see how they understand something, what happens if we look into this character or or if we move this a bit to the left, you know it's a show that lends itself well to interpretation as it really is that deep, I would say.
1: Yeah, I agree. And I think it is a testament to the absolute um, foundational strength of the writing um, yeah. that it, it does lend itself not only to a lot of people, um, you know, do uh, a use and divert from Canon which is fantastic. I absolutely love all of that. But the but the ability of fic writers uh, to just burrow deeper into the existing canon and go in and provide that missing the missing detail and fleshing out the backstory inside the structure of the canon, and it still holds up, and it still does not shift any of the existing structure. Yeah, it's incredible that you're able to do that because there is such foundational strength in all of that writing. And there has, in recent times, um, I've been seeing on Discord a lot of discussions about season one and about a lot of the backlash that so many people have to season one. And when recommending it to friends, oh, you just got to push through season one. Oh, you know, <laughs> season one's just not a, yeah. you go back on a rewatch. Season one is amazing it really is because it sets so much up from the first episode it's and just th- laying yeah, yeah so much structure in
2: and you know what gets me about season 1 so when i so i recently rewatched the first three episodes and it really hit me how different the tone is it really feels like a freaking comedy sometimes like i'm mm. watching episode one flint i'm i'm looking at him and i'm like who are you look at you with your silly mustache and all smiley and cocky and i'm like oh my god this man is so funny and silver the first time he literally just rolls onto the scene and he starts doing his silver thing being a clown (laughs) it's like oh my god especially i mean I finished the show recently, so their season four selves are still kind of fresh in my mind. And when you contrast that, it's it's insane the, mile- the mileage, the distance they, mm-hmm. you know, they cross to become who they eventually become in the end, their treasure island selves, shall we say. And like you said, the story is so, it's, it's, it's like a tapestry or something. It's so tightly woven. and uh, Yes. All the time while I was watching. So you just get bit by bit and you can see, oh, this character is connected to this character. But actually, this character mirrors this character. And if you consider maybe these two share something and these are opposites, but these two are also an alliance and it's... Really, I am in awe of the structure and of the character writing. It's so good. Because if you think about it, in this show, every time there's an option for something bad to happen to a character. So it's not just that a bad thing is going to happen. The worst possible thing is going to happen. And then the characters will have to somehow deal with it. And that is incredibly compelling you you know it just pulls no punches yeah and i really respect that it's amazing
1: yeah and it is a testament yeah going back and watching um the first couple of episodes directly after finishing it's it is such a stark contrast and what that what that highlights is really how incredible these character arcs are that the that we've traveled on with these with these people and it's it's insane and the the parallels yeah that are set up purposely throughout the entirety of the series there's mirrors there's parallels there's callbacks dialogue is repeated in various situations and that's all on purpose there's absolutely no way that it can be anything other than absolutely meticulously planned. It's beautiful. Um, And similarly, in the structure of the character arcs, I would compare it to Breaking Bad because it has that same, if you go back and rewatch the beginning of Breaking Bad after watching the end and where the characters are at the end and then go back, it's just so strikingly different. Um, and that's that is a testament to an amazing and amazingly written show. So the three fics that you've written in your Black Sail series, Memories They Keep, touch on James, Thomas, and Miranda. Miranda's featured in parts one and three. So what was it about that aspect of the story that really drew you in so deeply? So many fic writers, they uh tend to go all in on Silver Flint because it kind of feels like unfinished business right at the end there. So what was it that, that pulled you in immediately to the Flint Hamiltons?
2: Yeah. Something I'd like to say um, about Silver Flint and unfinished business. I really thought when I watched it, it really did not feel unfinished to me. It fit. Mm. it felt, it felt, so final because you know the the choice that silver made it was just he tried to save them by breaking up the whole thing and he put an end to it i mean that's how i see it and i could talk about it for ages and cry about it and whatever but um yeah uh flint and hamilton's it's really What drew me to that, I mean, first of all, I find it really compelling uh, Mm -hmm. because it's the three of them and the reveal of their relationship. So in season one, we get these hints that, you know, we obviously know that Flint and Miranda have something going on. And then Guthrie comes in with like, "Uh ooh, Thomas Hamilton he died because he was sad because you cheated on him or something and then you start thinking oh yeah so she cheated on him with flint he was sad whatever you know basic story that you've seen a hundred million times and then black sales the brilliant show that it is they know how to play with your expectations you know they kind of lead you on like yeah this is what's happening well actually yeah. no it's not at all what's happening it's these three people are living a completely different life and have this really special connection and a special kind of love and the world just wasn't ready for it they could not have it where they were in the place and time so yeah this whole story is actually an aftermath of a devastating heartbreak which when i saw well it was kind of a an absolute paradigm shift i was like oh my god <laughs> this is brilliant <laughs> just you, you know really when you're just staring at the screen absolutely dumbstruck by what happened it's a property that really only few really great stories can pull off and i don't know it's just absolutely amazing so where was i um yeah. So what I like about them, it's that they are so fundamental to the overall story. So not just Flynn's story, but the plot as mm-hmm. well. Um, I like them as people. They are very interesting characters. I mean, um, Miranda, she is probably in my... I mean it's really hard to say who my top five characters would be because every character is great but she is so cool honestly (laughs) you know this very strong um, she's a very strong woman and she has these aspects you know she she is uh, radical free thinking but also has this more gentle maternal side to her but there's also this rage and frustration Um, Flint, Flint is everything (laughs) I absolutely love him and his whole story is just so compelling and Thomas Thomas is sort of this question mark to me uh, which is honestly I'm very happy that you chose to talk about this fic because that presented some challenges for me because we mm. don't mm-hmm. see a lot A lot of him, you know, we see a bit in those flashbacks, we can sort of get the idea that he's this idealistic um, man with uh, morals of steel and his beliefs that he will not go back on and also his whole shtick with no, no shame, so he is not ashamed of who he is, he's going to fight for what he believes in, he's going to love the people he loves with his whole heart. And that is also very compelling. But at the same time, his ghost looms across the narrative. And even though he's not there for like 80 or 90% of the time, he's still very much there. And there is something very interesting in characters who are more defined by their absence than their presence. Oh, yeah. That is really interesting.
1: It does. It does. And you know what? What you said, characters that are defined more by their absence than their presence, because Thomas is that in Black Sails, and then Flint is that in Treasure Island.
2: Exactly. Yeah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Amazing amazing (laughs) (laughs) so one thing that i also noticed is that a lot of people when they're kind of flailing at the end of their uh first watch of black sales or i don't know their fourth or fifth um (laughs) you i don't think the reaction ever really changes it it, because it's such a such a brilliant structured show you know it takes you on that same emotional journey every single time so um A lot of fic writers go in it uh, with the mentality of creating a fix-it fic. So, okay, this is really sad. I'm really devastated. And how can I make myself feel better? I'm going to write a happier ending um, where uh, it's almost kind of this, you know, gauzy kind of Vaseline over the lens where... uh, James and Thomas are together and it's amazing. And, you know, they, they make what they can of it or they immediately escape or, and I'm guilty of, of a lot of those headcanons myself, just because I don't like always to live in that pain, (laughs) but you (laughs) chose to go at it in a way that if the writers had continued Uh, with another season, and actually focused on Thomas and James at the plantation, this is very realistically how it would go. So what led you to take that approach, and how cathartic was it for you?
2: I chose pain. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Oh, dear. Uh, You you flatter me so, honestly. Jesus, I'm I'm blushing over here. Um, Well, yeah, I think... When I think about stories that I like, because I write fix only for the stories that really touched me on some level and that I feel connected to, I always like to think about the emotional core of that story and what was it that resonated with me. And in the case of Black Sales, as we've mentioned before, it was the brilliant structure, the really strong character writing. And the emotions that really felt true. And when I sat down to kind of process it all, I didn't want to go like, oh yeah, well, actually, here's a wonderful land of unicorns and rainbows and everything is happy. Not that there's anything wrong with it. And Jesus Christ, I really appreciate people who do do that because otherwise I would have developed depression or something. Um But for me, it's definitely more cathartic to just sit with all those emotions and find a way to express them in a way that feels honest to me. So in all of my writing, I always try to go for that emotional honesty first. And I mean, just these characters, they're, they're people. You, they're so three dimensional. That I just really want to take my time and think about them as people. Because people are messy and people have history and people have trauma and they just, they don't always do the right thing and they don't always say the right thing. So how can I express their emotional truths or better yet, what is something that they themselves don't know? that they need, or that they're feeling, and how can I show that? How can I show them as people? That's really important to me. And it really took me a long time to just sit with this story when I thought about, okay, I'm going to write about Flint just spending his first few months at that plantation and just... How would it feel, the aftermath of it all? Because there's always something very interesting. I mean, the ending is very interesting because I think, in a lot of ways, it would have been more merciful for Silver to just shoot him and be done with it. Yeah. Because yeah. At, at that plantation, that's like, that's either purgatory or hell, I think. It is this place that you cannot leave. But also it is a chance for him to have a moment of relative peace where he can just sit with himself and see this path that he took to get where he ended up and i really wanted to explore that that was my main sort of mission with this story And of course, when Thomas comes into it, he's been there for 10 years. He has no idea what happened. He is, they're both so different, but at the same time, their cores, their emotional core is Mm -hmm. the same. So I wanted to see, okay, would they still resonate? And you mentioned I did not go to, I did not go the route of fix it, but there is something very, I don't know, When I finished this and while I was reading it, my main worry was, oh, God, this feels quite naively optimistic. Am I being too wishy-washy about this? Am I really considering the consequences of everything that happened? But yeah, I wanted it to be as realistic as I can. I mean, yeah, as realistic as I can write it but also kind of hopeful and possibly a bit optimistic. I was like, okay, everything is sad. Everything is blue, but there's always something in life that you can be optimistic about. I really do believe that. And I wanted to give them that, you know, just a space to find some kind of hope in a place that to me personally feels very hopeless, (laughs) But, yeah. Yeah. yeah and I think I
1: think it was it was really really resonant for me as well and one of the things that I uh, kind of used to describe how these fix feel is pressing on a bruise because it, it is it is finding <laughs> the hurt and pushing on it to like squeeze out all of the honesty and that's really really how these stories read I reread them yesterday and that just again leaped out at me the emotional honesty of these characters that are distilled so perfectly in these stories. I'm astonished. I really yeah. am. When when we were first God. talking, when we were first talking on Discord and planning this episode, and you told me that you had just finished watching, I was like. You've got to be kidding me because of how well you've captured these characters. It is astonishing. And, and I, I'm not going to stop gushing over it because Mm -hmm. I'm really, really, really shocked. So in part three, you tell the story from Miranda's perspective, both reflecting back on her time in London with Thomas and James, uh, Mm -hmm. but also of her kind of directing James's murderous rage towards Alfred Hamilton and the guilt and hesitation and kind of dark night of the soul that she feels about that and her culpability in all of this. And what what struck me is how Shakespearean that mental exploration was literally I sat down last night and I pulled up a bunch of clips of Judy Dench um, <laughs> it, as as lady Macbeth and it oh, just dear. now obviously lady Macbeth has a lot more um, sinister qualities to her than Miranda does but th- I did see some echoes of Lady Macbeth in your your mental treatment of Miranda, did that was that in, on purpose in any way, or what do you what are your thoughts on
3: that?
2: <laughs> oh dear, uh, yeah, actually, here's an admission: um, I've never read Macbeth. I know it's the Scottish play. I know the premise, but I've never actually read it or seen it. I from Shakespeare, the, uh, I only know The Tempest which Mm -hmm. I really love, and Hamlet. Really? Romeo and Juliet also, because there are those wonderful, there's a wonderful uh, Baz Luhrmann movie that is actually the best adaptation of Romeo and Juliet, Fight Me. Oh, and also um, Richard III because of the Ian McKellen movie, which Mm
0: -hmm. is
2: also really good. But yeah, um... I think what happened here, because it definitely wasn't a conscious effort on my part, but knowing what I know from the cultural zeitgeist, I guess, and the context of Shakespeare, I think the show itself drew on that.
0: Mm-hmm. I would
2: argue that it's way that it's something that just appeared naturally in the show, and that in my process of writing it i just sort of picked it up because lady macbeth yeah i should not talk about her if i don't know her but basically there is kind of a comparison to be made with miranda from what little i do know and what i really liked now to go back to miranda in that um context is that she really, she's not a sinister character by any means, or at least I don't see her as such. But there is that moment that I really wanted to explore because how angry, how frustrated do you have to be to know that you hold a man's life in your hands and to say, yeah, he deserves to die. Mm-hmm. because she wasn't going to be the one to kill him she cannot do it she she doesn't know how to use a sword she is not a pirate she never was but and here's this sort of thing that I was trying to do as a witch because she was called like a witch yeah. who her words have magic her words have effect and if she just directs Flint, if he is her sword, then she can get what she wants. But it's a really awful thing to do. Alfred Hamilton can go die and choke any day, definitely. But it's more so difficult and awful for her and for Flint. Because when she does that, they are not only partners, they're not only lovers, they're not only friends, they're accomplices. So they are partners are in crime they are Mm -hmm. bound together by this horrible horrible thing which goes beyond just sadness of loss which is now rage murderous rage and you know that's a that's a loaded thing to think about but also again very compelling and when I wrote my first pick, uh, which everyone's going to read now, because you're you're going to have to see the title, um, it was from uh, Flint's perspective. And I called him James because he is in her house, and that's where he can only be James. So it was from his perspective. And immediately I had a thought, oh, I want one from her perspective, because she's always in that house, and she spends so much time alone and in this um, town where people just don't really appreciate her and they look at her as if she's some you know foreign woman witch whatever and this strange man comes into her house and oh my god you know and I just really needed her point of view in thinking just how am I going to go about this this moment presented itself to me because she was the one who told Flint about Hamilton and I thought okay yes perfect this is the point around which I'm going to center that story and I think it worked out it took me like a few weeks of just contemplating and then like two weeks of actually writing it you know just going about my daily business and jotting down a line or two and then just sitting down and saying okay time to do this but yeah she is so complex and so tortured and she shares that with flint and that's just what makes them a great duo if you love to be sad <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah um that is yeah that's true they they really do um become accomplices and it deepens the the angst so much yeah. um one of the one of the things yeah you you did mention that the show creates a parallel um, with Lady Macbeth. And yeah, it really does, especially in season one, that buildup of kind of suspicion before you know the backstory. When Marley is saying, that's because you don't know about, the, about Mrs. Barlow. It builds her up as this Shakespearean kind of Lady Macbeth character where uh, she is the puppet master behind the scenes. And I'm gonna just out myself as watching a ton of Black Sales reaction videos on YouTube, <laughs> and and absolutely loving the complete uh, misdirect that so many viewers get in yeah. in terms of Miranda, all of the suspicions and all of this. It's just as an emotional vampire, I enjoy it so much.
2: <laughs> absolutely, and then and then the whole thing is revealed and you just see I don't know, I was watching some four well, I they're not dude bros, but they were, you know, your typical manly men who like pirates, and they're just their reactions, like the the faces aghast and the mouth slowly dropping open like holy shit Yeah, is that blind holy
1: wave? Dro- yeah blind wave. I've watched yeah all of them <laughs> all of them. <laughs> I don't at all weekly search for new ones, no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I, the, you're right. The writers do set that up as well. And again, it's just, it just is another testament to how amazing um, the structure and the story and the character development and and everything that is interwoven into, as you said, this tapestry of a story where you take out one thread and the whole thing unravels. Mm -hmm. and it's absolutely amazing so do you foresee continuing this series or do you think that your this particular one has found its conclusion
2: well actually there is one person who is missing his own story so we've had a point of view of james we had point of view of miranda and I would really love to finish it off with a Thomas point of view. So I yes. conveniently left him uh, for last because, as I said, he is a uh, he is a complicated little guy because there's not that much we get from him. So it's also a matter of your own interpretation. And I just wanted to make sure that I had James and Miranda sort of figured out before embarking on that. But yeah, there's going to be one more uh about Thomas, which if you would like to hear about it, I can tell you a little
1: bit. I would love to hear about it, and I'm sure everybody okay. else would love to hear about it.
2: <laughs> so, this one is going to be set in uh, what's the year? 1735 or 6. So, as far as I am aware, uh black sales is supposed to take place some 20 years before treasure island so i took so the beginning year of black sales is 1715 and 1735 would be treasure island and as we know during treasure island flint is dead sorry um so (laughs) yeah it's gonna be one with thomas uh and alone so flint is gone by this point and I had this wacky idea. what would be what would happen if he were to talk to Madi of all people? If she somehow got there, I'm still trying to figure out the story in my head, but I really, the more I thought about it, I was like, oh, it would be so interesting to have them talk because, um Thomas was the initial motivator for Flint. Yeah. And then later, Madi, she became that sort of person. And she is she is the most obvious parallel to to Flint during season four. Yeah. Yeah. And I just thought that these two people would have some astonishing conversations. And now, as soon as my brain is kind enough to provide me with the words, I'm very much looking forward to writing that one. I think it's going to be interesting.
1: Wow. That's yeah.
2: <laughs> that's going to be
1: great. Because um, yeah, Madi and Thomas are so opposite in terms of their approach to, to things because Thomas very much was coming at it from a colonial perspective. Exactly. And yeah, it, that would be so fascinating. So fascinating. <laughs> but again, James is gone, so, you know, fresh
2: pain. Yeah, I mean, basically basically, the premise was she was kind of looking for him. But in the end, she found Thomas instead because James is already gone. So she was too late. But <laughs> what will happen when she finds this other man? And, I mean, Silver did tell her about Thomas. Now whether she eventually grew to believe him or not is another another topic entirely, but also something worth addressing, I suppose. And, yeah, so this colonial perspective, which is also something very interesting in Black Sails, and Thomas being this sort of... I I don't know. I think he would... I think he would have changed during those years, honestly. Mm -hmm. Just like like Flynn did, because he was also very colonial in seasons one and two. But then during season season 3 his shift began to happen and in season 4 he's very anti- establishment, anti-Spain and England and fuck the Empire. We gotta break it. So I think um, yeah, and it's also supposed to be sort of a soft sequel to this one. You know, because um, I wrote this one initially because I did not know what uh, James and Thomas would do, whether they would stay at the plantation or whether they would try to run away. And I first had to see what happens in those first few months. And now with this one, I think, okay, maybe I can sort of see what happened afterwards. How do, where, where do they end up? Because the more I think about it, the more I find that this version of Flint that exists in my head... Would not stay there on that plantation, maybe mm-hmm. for a while, but I don't think he would let himself die there,
1: yeah, yeah <laughs> yeah i I don't think so either, you know, no matter how uh sad or depressed he was going into that place, like he does not he does not have the ability to lie down and mm. die he's a he is a fighter, he was a fighter from the very beginning of his story chronologically throughout the series. So you go back before Thomas is taken. um, He's already just pounding the shit out of dudes in a pub because of things that are said about Miranda and Thomas. So he already has that spark. So when I believe it was Hennessy was saying... Um, Mm -hmm. You have this thing that is darker and wilder in you. A lot of us tend to romanticize James and say, oh, he was such this pure angel dove before everything (laughs) happened to him. He was not. He was not. not. Because, you know, your reaction to trauma is based on who you are at your core, not entirely just based on what has happened to you. Because a lot of people have horrible things happen to them and they don't go burn down the empire.
3: Yeah, I
2: mean, Um, yeah, sorry for, but I think what's really important to remember with James is like he is very much from a working class background. So he, mm -hmm. he is not a nobleman he did not get education he did not get uh handed these opportunities to join the navy and be the school admiral or something he had to fight for that i mean that's what thomas says to him like you are the you are more well read and smarter than the men i went to school with so you obviously have this ambition and i do think that he is very I mean, he's obviously very snarky, I think, and kind of cynical back then. Mm -hmm. But that's because he knows what the climb is. And he has this massive ambition that he wants to fulfill. So, no, I, I absolutely agree with you. He's not pure and he's not this idealistic person. I think he's very realist and almost to the point of cynicism, in my view. So, sorry for interrupting you
1: <laughs> no that's okay that's I just okay get so,
2: <laughs> i just get so carried away by my thoughts <laughs>
1: well, and, well it's,
2: and it's it's a
1: nature the very nature of uh the show like it just it, in inspires just a passionate response in everybody that that really yep. finishes it I don't know that I've talked to anyone who was lukewarm about it that actually finished the series anybody who's been like ah black sales yeah it's people who bailed before they really understood what was happening mm-hmm. um yeah other than that it rewires your brain Absolutely. Everything like Definitely. people talk about like their brain chemistry change. It, it revolutionizes people. It just, it is that strong and powerful of a story that you can't come out of it with your worldview intact, unless it was already in, in line with the show's writers.
2: Exactly. It's yeah. Incredible. And, that, and that's the quality of good stories. They don't just, they communicate on so many levels. And they make you think and question things. Even though it's a show about pirates in the 17th century and yo-ho-ho and skulls and whatever and rum, it won't let you escape some very topical questions. And it will make you think about them. And that's really at the core of good writing, I think you know just the ability to tackle so many things at once and in such a concise such a uh, such an honest way it's it's a miracle honestly yeah. <laughs> no notes yeah. amazing
1: and uh, yeah and i think that is it gets really down to the to the heart of art and stories and how important it is in society when you think about it there's a lot of things that happen in life there's people go on to noble professions of you know medicine and law and all these things but those those professions those things as admirable as they are are put in place and to maintain the structure of society but what is society society yeah. is stories society is art society is sitting and singing a song to our kids or or you know reading poetry to someone you love it is it is the art that we live for and exactly. i think it's so much more important than a lot of people give it credit for um and people tend to be very dismissive oh you can't you know why are you talking about stories when you could be talking about climate change and things like that which is extremely important But again, these are all structural things to support the fact that humanity is a story. Mm -hmm. We are all stories.
2: It's what our souls are made of and everything that surrounds us. You got to tell yourself something, you know, the history and climate change and politics and advertisements and everything has a narrative. And Mm -hmm. I think that people who are dismissive of stories are really, in a way, deluding themselves. They're doing themselves a disservice because there's always, always some kind of narrative and some kind of agenda. So we just, we are just wired that way. And again, what's really exceptional. About black sales is that it shows us this these systems these patterns of thought of government of living, and it makes us aware that hey guys like you know that none of this is to be taken for granted, none of this is God given. This is all man made, and what man has made he can also unmake. Mm-hmm. So. Everything fluctuates, everything changes, but it's all one huge narrative, as you say, you know, the story of mankind, and really the importance of it cannot be overstated. I truly believe that.
1: Absolutely.
2: So what is uh, one of your
1: favorite lines or passages that you've written, whether it's recently or something that you're working on and anything that's uh, upcoming? What's really resonating with you right now?
2: Mm. Okay, so recently, I sort of took a break from writing because I was like, Oh, no, real life is happening. And I have to do real life things. So I'm sort of in a state of resting my brain but for this episode i also revisited this story <laughs> and i thought maybe i would read out some uh bits from that that i yes. actually liked and i would like to sort of highlight so first one obviously the one that i used as for uh, the summary yeah odysseus and penelope you know like when you're okay. writing yeah, like when I'm writing, sometimes, you know, most of the time it's like, okay, this sentence goes here. Okay, I'm going to write. It. But sometimes I don't know what happens. I It's not even me. It's, it's the universe comes and says, Eva, here's a sentence. Here's a line. Here's a paragraph. And I just write it down. And I'm like, oh, this mm. is a banger. And here, here, here's what, <laughs> you know, just, oh, this hits. Anyhow, he, here's a banger. Okay. What did Odysseus say to Penelope when he came back to Ithaca? And what did Achilles say to Patroclus when they met in the afterlife? Both as mere shadows of what they once were, only kept alight by the love they shared. What do you say after I'm home, when you find that home is not as you left it? Because you are not as you were before. When it is time to reconcile with the hard truths and consequences of all that you have done have mercy on me know that what i tell you is of the past and that it has brought me to you so please have mercy this in fact (laughs) was a very important um paragraph sort of like when i'm doing these character studies there are bits and passages that serve as keys that unlock the rest of the story and this was very much (laughs) that key because the main problem that I had was, how was James going to tell Thomas of everything that happened? And this sort of gave me the answer. So, like, I'm just going to lay myself bare. You know me. I know you. And I trust that you will be merciful, that you were. That you will afford me the same love and understanding that I give to you. So, yeah, that was really important. The really important bit. That's beautiful. (laughs) And one more, actually, if I may. Okay. Oh, yes, of course. Yes. Okay. So this one is about, this one is at the beginning about James. All his life he ran to the sea. But when all was said and done, when his life had run its course, he didn't want to be entombed in it, to be mangled by the fishes and whatnot until all that was left of him were bones. He wanted to be laid down into a hole and covered in darkness from which something alive might sprout. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for this one, I was sort of doing this, um, the sea and the earth, because yeah. obviously yeah. he is far from where he usually is. And I find that earth has this lovely quality to be both a source, so the beginning of life and the end of life. mm And life only exists, so, you know, if you have life, you have to have death. And it's a cycle. And when something dies, it gives life to something else. And it was this sort of idea of his life creating this fertile ground for greenery, for other life. But also, in a more metaphorical sense, for other ideas, for other people who will be like him, who will be fighting that same fight so in this endless cycle of humanity i guess those two i think are probably the most important in terms of like themes and structure
1: yeah those are those are really really beautiful and i think one of the things that it really reflects also is when we think about flint in season 1 talking about all i really want is to walk away from the sea and find some peace. And the absolute monkey's paw type of reality of how he receives that quote unquote peace. Yeah. (laughs) It is the worst possible scenario of how he achieves that. And uh, it's just, again, evil, evil writers. So beautiful.
2: (laughs) Be careful what you wish for, for you (laughs) might get it. (laughs) <laughs>
1: exactly exactly yeah. you know we have all of those parallels set up where they're rowing back to the island and the whole boat is filled with shovels and i'm just
2: like oh mm-hmm. no <laughs> time to bury this
1: <laughs> yeah
2: let's <laughs> beat it to the ground the yeah let's just beat you over the head
1: with the narrative while we're at it <laughs>
3: <laughs> oh god
1: yeah so what is your writing process like
2: Mm, my writing process. Yes. I don't actively go in search of ideas. I like to... I guess you could liken it to fishing. I know that I'm now interested in black sails, so I'm just going to put some lures and see what kind of fish fish stories appear. <laughs> and sort of when an idea appears in my mind, I like to think about it before i start writing it just i don't know have this conversation with myself like oh okay so james is at the plantation thomas is there obviously they're gonna have to talk i sort of do this to tell the story to myself in my own brain and then when i sit down to write it's more it's the effect of previous contemplation actually There's this term that was used by the romantic poet William Wordsworth. I Mm -hmm. think it was the second eye. So, you know, first you see something and you just let the impressions wash over you. You just let it flow through you. And then later when you're in your room or somewhere, you just sort of contemplate it and bring it back, bring it forth as a memory. So yeah that's sort of what I do and for these one shots it's just you know sort of stream of consciousness no rigid plotting just doing what feels right and writing as much as my brain wants to write and just stopping when I feel okay for this session we're done um so that's why it takes me I know it can take me from like a few days to a few months, depending on a story, (laughs) Mm -hmm. just whenever I feel like it. And when it comes to longer stories, so stories with multiple chapters, which I don't do very often because I'm not very good at planning, but I've sort of resolved to practice. What I find really helpful is to... Again, make a, make a loose structure with the main plot points, the main beats, and write a sort of fake summary of it, you know, like Spark Notes version, something that you would read if you did not read the book, but you got to know roughly what happens. And then I just sort of fill out the blanks. But it's a very contemplative process, a lot of going back and forth just mm-hmm. i'm trying to make it sound way fancier than it really is it's supposed to just be going okay i have no idea what i'm doing let's just throw shit at the wall and see what sticks <laughs> that, that's it you know just see what ha- go do it and see what happens and sometimes it works you know <laughs>
1: So one thing that I always ask people, and it um, will depend from writer to writer, because some people don't focus on tropes very much as writers. Do you have specific tropes that you like to write or um, is it more? And it sounds to me describing your writing process, it sounds to me like it's far more uh, organic and um, just writing things as they emotionally process with you.
2: Yeah, I would say also I mean, yeah, I'm not really aware of tropes while I'm writing maybe after the fact I can read the story and see okay, this has some, I don't know angst or hurt comfort or I don't know domestic scene or this is I mean, the only thing I can confidently say these are mostly all character studies Mm -hmm. Uh, but one fanfic trope that I do like is sick fix. So when one character is sick and the other has to take care of them, which is in this fic and in the third one also. Mm-hmm. Because I don't know, there's really something about taking care of someone when they're sick or being taken care of. You know, you see the person that they're really most physically vulnerable and sometimes they're most physically repulsive. Yeah. It can really, it can strengthen a relationship. It can break it. It can cause so many things. And it's really interesting to me.
1: Yeah, I agree. I Carry on. (laughs) I agree. I I love that as well. And in fact, um, Tora's episode, which is going to be coming up, Cinnamon is all about about hurt comfort and uh, taking care of, flint when he is sick with an infection from a wound oh, um, yeah and yeah i <laughs> i absolutely love that love it so in reading fan fiction i know you again are relatively new um to the fanfic universe for black sales mm-hmm. have you done much fic reading are you still getting started what are your your favorite black sales kind of tropey things to to read?
2: Okay, well, yeah. In terms of black sales tropes, I don't really know that many because I haven't really read that many stories. I've uh, I've obviously read those that were featured on this podcast. Love those, Mwah, beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, I haven't read that many to really pick out. Or to notice a certain trend or trope. Which is also very interesting, because when you're, you're in a fandom for a while, you can see how certain characters adopt certain mannerisms or certain tropes or certain ways of speaking. That's just how sort of fandom consensus makes them. But yeah, I haven't really noticed. Hmm. Let me see. Out of these ones that I have singled out nope okay Sorry. <laughs> that is okay
1: <laughs> so um what is your background in creative writing because i've talked to several people who have blown my mind and said i have none but you're just grasp of the beauty of the language and structure in terms of the organic nature of these character studies which is fantastic you have to have some kind of creative writing background please tell me because Um, then I'm just gonna hate myself
2: I think (laughs) see I think it's more of a reading background Mm, um in terms of in terms of creating writing um well, yeah, I've been a prolific fanfic auteur since I was about 13 years of age. But those are the <laughs> dark ages, which we will not speak of, unless in private and not on recording. <laughs> but, um, I mean, I sort of, ever since I was a kid, I like to make up my own stories and sort of dabbled in that. Um, recently, I've been trying to force myself, well, and failing, but to maybe write more original stuff and definitely more in Croatian because all of fan fiction that I write is in English. So Mm -hmm. I'd like to pivot maybe, you know, use my mother tongue a little so as not to forget it. But definitely when it comes to writing, I think reading is most important. And I've noticed, so I've only really started to write on the regular since last year which coincides with about a year and a half prior to that when I started to read like a lot you know Uh, when I was Mm -hmm. a kid I would read like three books every week and then I started high school and then I sort of forgot about it because you know you have to read books for school and it was boring and so reading becomes boring but then the pandemic happened and I reached I reached for this little novel called the wizard of Earthsea*, and I fell in love and I just kept going from there, both with uh, Ursula K. Le Guin, but also just anything I could get my hands on. And it really informs um, first of all, my language skills and writing in terms of structure and pacing and how to build character and what to describe, what to leave out. I mean, I, I'm i still very much a beginner and I've got a lot to learn, but it's been a very enjoyable process in noticing the shift in how writing becomes so much more natural and fun when you do have that reading background. And that is actually an advice that many people, many writers do give. So you want to write first, you have to read. And I really agree with yes, that. Yes. That is essential.
1: So yeah, yeah and I... I have noticed um, <laughs> that the the fix that I tend to gravitate towards, without having any prior knowledge of it, um, tend to be uh, authors writing in English as a second language, and mm-hmm. I, and it has become a pattern on this podcast. <laughs> exactly. Um, and I didn't even I had no idea until I reached out and contacted the specific writers saying. Oh my god, I love this. I would love to feature you on the podcast and then we we chat and I realize, oh, this is this is someone who's writing in a second language. The I don't know, it is a certain undertone in the language that brings out a more formal structure um in terms of language that i'm really really drawn to and that happens to pop up in pretty much every one of these fics that i have reached out to to people who are who are not writing in their native tongue and it's interesting so you're from croatia tora is from poland and lecky who we featured uh, last episode um well when this airs it'll be two episodes ago episode 4 uh, is ukrainian and it's it's just really interesting. You are um, collecting
2: Slavs. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly right. Yeah, exactly right. And and just
1: such beautiful writing. I'm just I'm I don't know what I'm saying in regards to this. Just I'm making this observation that that those are the voices that I tend to be drawn into. Yeah.
3: It's very Best very interesting.
1: Wise. And um so. What I know you said you were thinking you kind of stewing over the the story from Thomas' perspective. Is that what you're working on right now, or is there something something else in the interim?
2: Um well, there's that one, and there's one that I'm really excited about, honestly, um that I'd love to share with you. Yes, please um, okay. <laughs> so basically, this idea came to me and a friend of mine while we were chatting casually and then suddenly the arrow of inspiration or more like the thunderbolt struck us both. We were like, hmm, what if Mari ended up having John Silver's child after the events of Black Sales? So, I mean, we we know that they obviously slept together. So what if there was a kid there? And what if Mm. after the end? So, you know, Silver does eventually fuck off somewhere because he's in Treasure Island. He's not on Nassau. He's not there forever. Shame on you, Silver. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So what would that be like, that kid? And we sort of crafted this original character um which we named james for maximum pain and oh my god
1: how dare you yeah and basically
2: and basically it's going to be a story that takes place so 17 years after so james james Bowie, jim jam he is but of 17 years of age and uh, so he le- he lives on Nassau and the first chapter is just his life there. So with Madi and Max and Jack is there. I'm sort of ignoring the history of it all. So what's Roger's returning or Jack mm-hmm. and then getting hanged? Like, no, no, no. It's fan fiction that didn't have to happen. <laughs> <laughs> I-, I am the master of this. And it sort of goes into Treasure Island because... He They catch whiff of this ship, the Hispaniola, that's sailing to uh, Skeleton Island. And James decides to go for himself to see whether he can find this treasure, whether he can meet this man who is his father. So basically he knows who his father is. He knows the story, but not all of it. So it's this sort of coming of age, but also merging Black Sails and Treasure Island and also a character study of John Silver because I don't think I could do one from his point of view because he is he is like a mirror to me you know you can Mm -hmm. see the reflection but you cannot see behind the mirror so I think he works best when paired with other characters that's when his self really comes out like Oscar Wilde said, give a mask to someone and they will tell you everything, about yeah. Themselves, you know. Um, and yeah, I just thought it very interesting to have Silver have to confront himself in James. First of all, he's named James, second mm-hmm. of all, he is Marty's son, third of all, for a character who is so desperate to leave his past, to be suddenly confronted with the consequence of that past. And this kid is sort of like, he is the past and the future. And that is something that Silver isn't. He is only the present. And now he has to face that. And I just, the more I thought about it, the more compelling I found it just, and it will be really emotionally difficult for Silver, especially, Especially after Treasure Island, which I also, after seeing the show, I went to my local library, I borrowed it, I read it, I was like, this is a kid's book, but it reads like a tragedy after Black Sails. It's amazing. Oh my gosh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So I was like, okay, I get to make my own character, I get to revisit these great characters, and I get to emotionally torture John Silver. Hell yeah, I'm (laughs) writing this amazing yeah so uh that's what you're working
1: on is there anything in particular that you're reading right now any any good books that are inspiring you or what's on your on your list
2: Mm -hmm. well recently i had a trip down memory lane um and reread the hunger games trilogy with my friends Mm -hmm. i think i last read it 10 years ago so just when i was on the cusp of becoming a teenager and now that I'm leaving that phase of my life, I reread it. And it's so interesting how differently some things hit. Some parts of the, of that trilogy are so haunting. And definitely, I would say it's uh, one of the best young adult dystopian novels. It really holds up well. And uh, yesterday and today, in preparation for this fig that I was just talking about, and just life in general, I was uh, rereading uh, Ursula K. Le Guin's Earthsea series. I read *The Farthest Shore* yesterday, so which is mm-hmm. the third book, and today I started the fourth one, *Tehanu*. And I just find—I mean, have you read them? Maybe.
1: I haven't. I haven't gotten uh, much into that type of fantasy novel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I tend to be all over the map in terms of the things that I'm reading. My love of fantasy started very, very early on with Lord of the Rings. And yes. um, <laughs> I didn't really get back into it until reading the Fetch Phillips archives. Oh, I'm with... to read
2: those.
1: They're so good because it's fantasy noir and oh, okay I do and I do love noir because um mm-hmm. getting into um James Elroy and a lot of those books where it's like kind of like the the uh the boilerplate kind of um plotting and structure like that I I actually really really enjoy that but I tend to I tend to gravitate kind of all over the map in terms of uh literature that I read
2: yeah yeah me too but yeah, what I find with Ur- Ursula, I think um, she really inspires me in my own writing uh, because she has this great way uh, with blending uh, this really evocative, descriptive writing uh, with some really hard-hitting emotional truths, like even Earthsea, which is which is for kids. Mm-hmm. Um, I think adults can enjoy it because the themes of mortality, of facing oneself, of uh truth and life and stories words in general the power of words it's really i mean okay i would recommend anything from her but the way she just she does it so elegantly and i really look up to her as a writer she Mm -hmm. I, i would dare to say that she is probably my biggest inspiration you know, and if in my lifetime, I can write something that would be but a fraction of her brilliance, you know, I would be I would be happy with that. Really happy. Love her. Excellent.
1: <laughs> so for for a lot of people, this is a really, really, really hard question. It might not be as hard for you because you are just starting out in terms of it, your exploration of Black Sales fan fiction. But what are your top five favorite fan
2: Okay, let's see. Well, I have five. Um, definitely, I have to mention, uh, Lucky's Fig from last episode. That one was just. I'm so bad with titles. I'm sorry, guys, but basically every fig that was featured on this podcast, mm-hmm. I listened to it. I really loved it, but that last one especially hit an emotional nerve. Shall we say it was beautiful? So, yeah. So. That one, so Design for list. for
1: people yeah so for people listening mm-hmm. that was um their most certainly lies a dark moment between here and there that was lucky's
2: absolutely
1: gorgeous
3: <laughs>
2: okay and now in my own uh explorations, so the one that i read the other day and i absolutely love it's called gone to port royal by a pet's life i guess is the username <laughs> um it's basically this alternate universe or where all the characters are in this black sails version of valhalla and it's written from the point of view of gates <laughs> and it's just them arriving in waves you know as the show goes <laughs> and i found it so interesting because first of all because of the setting and because i really think it's something only fan fiction can provide this sort of wild idea like, okay, let's put them all together in the afterlife. But it also, so yeah, it was really, it had funny moments. It had uh, emotional moments. It was a lovely, lovely read. Moving on with The Loaning of Books Between Friends by Magnetism Bind. Uh, uh, Sorry, Magnetism underscore Bind. Um, which is basically so Thomas loans books to James in an attempt to get to know his new liaison better. And it's so cute. It's so in character. It's so real. If you haven't read it, I recommend it. I really loved it. It's got this really great characterization of both of them, and James is so strict with himself and reserved with his feelings towards Thomas and Yeah, great read. And from the same author from Gone to Port Royal, we have Odysseus was an asshole, which is a great (laughs) title. And it's about the conversation between Silver and Flint on their way to Savannah, which is really sounds really heartbreaking. And I absolutely love that the author chose that moment because, you, you know, it's a blank that it, it is a hole that aches to be filled, that aches yes. to be explored. And one more, so that makes five, uh, Braids by Junkyard Doll, which is about Jack having, Jack Rackham, having a, basically Jack braids hair of his lovers, which in this fic are Anne and Vane. So he has this sort of habit of just braiding their hair and it's (laughs) it's so cute it's such a i i love when um authors can just take a character and give them this quirk Mm -hmm. that is so distinctly them and that is also so endearing and you know it works as a fic it works with the canon just it's true to the character and so unbearably cute and i love that one as well so yeah i think that's fine
1: wonderful i know um (laughs) Some of them I'm familiar with, but um, Magnetism Bind is absolutely one a favorite of mine as well. Their entire body of work. But I don't think I've read that one. So I have to
2: read it. Yes, it's a part um, of a series called The Friendship Verse. And mind you, so I was reading that fic and I read the second one. I was thinking, oh, I hope this author wrote something more. And I struck freaking gold they wrote like 208 fix. how great so is that
1: many yeah, yeah. oh my gosh <laughs> just
2: that fan fiction moment of i don't know finding heaven or something Hell
1: yes yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: so um are you watching any shows currently or what is your been your focus so far
2: well I'm sort of catching up with uh, Good Omens, the second season. And that's been really fun and charming so far. And uh, a few weeks ago, I saw Oppenheimer. And I just was so captivated by Killian Murphy and his performance mm-hmm. that I immediately had to go and watch Peaky Blinders. That has evaded me for many many years now i had i sort of heard of the show i had no idea what it was about and i'm currently on season two and it's so much fun you know just all these gangsters and drama and shooting like yes give me more of that
1: (laughs) wonderful i i also love um good omens i i I think I am an episode and a half into the second season. It's hard for me to get um, something that, you know, I can put on in the background. I used to love watching foreign shows, foreign films, um, where I could sit down and actually focus and read subtitles
2: because I refuse to listen
1: to dubbed audio.
2: Oh, God. Yeah. No, no. no. Atrocious. (laughs)
1: <laughs> um but as a busy parent and also um mm. doing this podcast like it's very very hard to actually sit down and watch so i have to choose things that i that i watch To their listenability so if I can you know hear it like a radio drama and still get the gist you know so that's (laughs) something that I can choose um but yeah so so lately I've just been so focused on podcast stuff which I absolutely love this has become and thank you so much for joining because this (laughs) this has been such a joy for me creatively when I have felt so cut off from that part of my life there really is kind of the before kids and after kids where you know it's it's hard to to maintain your individual individuality and this has brought that back for me so thank you so much for being a part of it thank Um, you so much
2: for starting it i mean obviously it takes so much energy and you know just this i i think about the scheduling that you have to do and my head already hurts so (laughs) good on you also if i may ask what, mm. what are your what are some of your favorite foreign films? Have you got any recommendations? Oh okay.
1: Um if you are a fan of classical music or opera, Farinelli Il Castrato. Farinelli yeah. Il, Il Castrato, it is mm-hmm. a kind of melting pot of of French, Italian, German. There's so many different languages in it, but it is such a beautiful, beautiful story. Of Farinelli, who his actual name was um, Carlo Broski, I believe. He was uh, the preeminent male uh, soprano, Castrati singer, during the time when Handel was coming up. And it's just an amazing story. It's an amazing story focusing on music, but also the relationship between he and his brother, who was a composer and kind of this uh, creative power struggle between them. And I, I can't say enough about this film. I had already fallen in love with it. And then when I was in college, one of my vocal teachers put it on and used it as a really good example of the treatment of the Baroque period and how the opera houses were actually staged. And, you know, it's, it's very, very well researched. Highly recommend it. Uh, The Lives of Others, I love, which is a German film set in Berlin Mm -hmm. after the wall goes up. Um, And that is that is absolutely a favorite. I started watching Dark the first season and I really loved it. But again, it's so complex that the amount of focus that I was able to pull onto it. I never after the first couple of episodes, I had no idea what (laughs) time we were in or like (laughs) what universe we were in. It, It just yeah. So those are the two that really <laughs> affected me deeply were the lives, the lives of Others and Farinelli, is like definitely a foundational uh, film for me because of how much of it focuses on um, things that I built my entire life and personality around. Right, so,
2: right. That's do, you, do you have
1: any recommendations?
2: Well, I'm quite partial to, to Korean cinema. South Mm -hmm. Korean cinema, last year I did this, like, marathon of this uh, director whose name I'm probably going to butcher now. So, Park Chan-wook, he did The Handmaiden, maybe you've heard of it, it was, like, from 2016. That's Mm -hmm. a great movie, and just about... Every of his movies, one that I really liked was a uh, "Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance." Old boy, also Jesus Christ, that is such a brilliant messed up movie. And I also quite like um, Pedro Almodovar. Uh, his movie "All About My Mother," I think it's one of my top five favorite movies of all time. It's so such a celebration of motherhood yes but also of womanhood i would say and it's so sincere and lovely and emotional and also references all about eve which is also one of my favorites so yeah oh, i
1: love oh, all about eve okay as a maryland a fan movie. as a maryland fan i love oh yeah all that about is eve like that is
2: like homework
1: for you <laughs> she was had such a small part in it Yep. but so memorable but my goodness betty davis in oh all God. about
3: eve
2: <laughs> after, Absolutely. after watching that movie i understood uh that song that they constantly play on the radio betty davis, betty eyes. davis eyes like yeah jesus christ what a woman what a tour de force performance yes
1: yes it's gonna be a bumpy ride
2: (laughs) yeah classic
1: (laughs) so great well you mentioning korean films made me think of another one which was um train to busan which took me apart emotionally and left me in various pieces all about oh my god not just as a lover of <laughs> um of zombie flicks but as a parent the end of that oh dear uh, my <laughs> when they flashed on the baby feet mm-hmm. i literally i was done i was out Stopping. i i watched it while i was cuz we lived in japan for 5 years from 2016 to 2021 mm-hmm. and so we we watched it while we were in Japan and my husband actually just kind of kind of gave up and went to, to bed because I was just sitting, he's like, you okay? I just sat there for probably 45 minutes yeah. shaking and <laughs> sobbing on the couch after having watched the movie. I was fully unprepared for that mm-hmm. type of film to mm-hmm. affect me so emotionally. But yeah, definitely. Yeah, that's definitely yeah. on the list there.
2: Yeah, because I was like, I was actually watching it with my kid sister, and she's like, she's like twelve, and I was like, look, you cannot watch this. This has zombies. This has blood. And she's like, I'm gonna watch it. And I'm like, fine. Have nightmares. I don't care. By the end, we we're both crying, sobbing, hugging each other. Like, oh my god, <laughs> I love you so much.
1: <sighs> you know, I, know, just... I really. <laughs> takes you on a journey man
2: not that emotional (laughs) core you know if there's one takeaway from this episode emotional core is the most important thing it very
3: very
1: much is yes (laughs) so if you had one piece of advice uh to give fanfic writers who are looking to break into the Black Sails universe, and really do it justice without straying too far away from the emotional truths of the characters. Because that is really what we're talking about. The emotional core and truths of these characters has to remain, or what is the point? So what is your what is your advice that you would give?
2: Well, to quote my my dear friend Thomas, as he put it, No, no shame. Just do it. Just go. Just... Let yourself feel. Just sit with it, process it, and just be honest with it. Because you may think, oh, who's going to read this? Don't, don't think about those people. Just think about what you want to say. Because your voice is your own. And your voice is a drop in a waterfall. You know, it adds so much. And when we're all in this together and we're all, it's, it's the only way we can connect. And because of that honesty, we can have these wonderful things. We can have wonderful conversations. We can have, we can make friends. We can grow as people. So just don't be ashamed. Don't be scared and be true to yourself. Somebody out there is going to notice it and they're going to say, wow, this person is so freaking cool. And you're going to be sitting there like, who me? And yes, you. Absolutely. That's my advice.
1: <laughs> Fantastic. Great <laughs> advice. Well, Eva, I have enjoyed this so much. Thank you so, so much for for joining me on the podcast. This has been an absolute joy. And um, I really look forward to everything that you're going to be putting out in the future.
2: Oh, goodness, Kendra, the enjoyment is all mine honestly i cannot thank you enough and you're such a warm kind person and you're so good at what you do and you're an amazing singer and it's really been a pleasure and a privilege to talk to you today and i will be looking forward to everything you do so keep being awesome (laughs) and have a lovely sunday okay
1: thank you you as well (laughs) all right thank
2: you very much
1: Thank you so much, Eva, for sharing your overwhelming enthusiasm and your wonderfully fresh perspective on our beloved polycule of James, Thomas, and Miranda. Eva's story, featuring Thomas and Madi has since been published on AO3. And trust me on this one, you do not want to miss it. Thank you to Kelsey, a.k.a. Magic Bubble Pipe, who drew the gorgeous sketch of Thomas's hand on the brow of a sleeping flint. Featured online for today's story. You can find them on Tumblr, at Magic Bubble Pipe, and on Patreon. Kelsey does stunning work and takes commissions, so definitely check them out. And thank you to all of our listeners. Whether you're returning or joining us for the first time, we appreciate you and we'd love to hear from you. Please remember to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating and a review. It truly does help us to be discovered by more listeners, which helps to shine a brighter spotlight on these amazing artists and creators. And great news, folks! I now have a Patreon. The costs that go into a podcast like this, including commissioning new cover art for each episode, are not insignificant. And in order to keep things running smoothly, I could use a little help from my friends. Just head on over to Patreon.com/slash Reading Between the Lines Podcast. Patreon members will receive early access to the episodes—three days early, in fact—sneak peeks of the cover art for upcoming episodes, and you'll even be able to submit questions for our upcoming guests, all at the $5 level. If you're a fanfic author and have a favorite story you'd love to hear and want to join me on the podcast, please reach out to me on Twitter, at kenterspring or at Audiofic or you can send an email to pod at gmail.com. If you're not an author, but you've got a favorite fic you'd like me to read, all suggestions are welcome. Please reach out. Thanks again for listening. This has been Reading Between the Lines, a fanfic audio podcast, and I'll see you next time. Bye-bye.